Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. Today on the podcast, we've got Russ Green. And uh, Russ is the former director of government relations and research at CrossFit. Uh, He's a former games athlete an Arabic linguist, and he's currently an associate director at Stand Together, a nonprofit in the D.C. area. Oh, hold uh, on, Will. Like, yeah, I was, a, I was a CrossFit Games athlete in 2007 and 8. Like, those <laughs> crazy ideas. You didn't even have to qualify <laughs> back then. So, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, you got to put that up there. That's a big accomplishment, man. <laughs> you know, even if you got in the ground floor, still, still, still counts, man. It's cool. Yeah. It, it was fun at the time, but. Yeah, cool. yeah. You know, Russ, uh, Will and I started, this is our ninth year, I guess. Will started just before I did, maybe a, a few months. And uh, I'm known as an old school CrossFitter. We, I don't know what that makes you. Oh, my God. I started in 2002. So, yeah. Wow. I think it makes me old. <laughs> makes you legendary. <laughs> it makes you legendary. <laughs> I, is- think, I think I'm... Initially, I was at the point where I'd been doing CrossFit so long that it was embarrassing that I wasn't like super duper fit. But now <laughs> I think I've been doing it long enough that it's like impressive that I'm still at it. You know that's what I mean? Like, oh, wow. 19 years. Still going. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, um, I'm going to kind of mix and match these questions. So, uh, so, Rust, how, how is – was that bio okay? Was there anything you'd like to add? I mean, you hit all the big things, I guess. Cool. We'll get into more detail. Very cool. And, and so how has your uh, training kind of evolved over these past years? So, oh, wow, that's an – I don't even think that was on the outline you sent me. Well, wow. curveball at you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. So, like – okay. 2000. So I started working out in 1999 and I was going to the YMCA doing a machine circuit because I thought if I built more muscle, it would, uh, I guess, help me get a girlfriend and improve my social status. It didn't either. (laughs) um, (laughs) I did get a little bit stronger, but you know, doing the YMCA machine circuit gets boring after a while and it just doesn't work very well. So I started looking online for just new ways to work out. And about 2002, I found CrossFit. Now, meanwhile, I was, you know, I was a high school student doing high school sports, you know, track, swimming, wrestling. Um, and I, one of the things that appealed to me about CrossFit was it seemed like you could be in really good cardio shape from swimming or running and still just get gassed wrestling in like 30 seconds. Like there wasn't a whole lot of, obviously there's some transfer, but it, it wasn't, it was surprising how tired you would get in a wrestling match, even if you thought you were in really good cardiovascular shape and CrossFit workouts, especially in the beginning, feel a lot like that. You know, it's that gasping for air weight on top of you. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I, I, for the first couple of years, I was mainly just using CrossFit just on the side, 
but you know, I happened to move to, um, happened to move to California just serendipitously. And that's where the first CrossFit gym was. So I started training there a little bit. And uh, it was really when I was in college that I started, you know, really getting into it more. Um, you know, I've, I never really was a guy who, you know, hey, I think I'm going to make regionals this year and I'm going to train seven hours a day. I, that, that was just never me, probably because I'm just not that talented. So it wasn't easy to delude myself into thinking I'd be the next Rich Froning. But um, I would say like over the years, what I found is that you need to, you need to sort of go on these quests and um, you never leave behind the general physical preparedness, but you know, every year or six months or whatever cycle makes sense to you, you pick something new that you want to work on and you lay that on top of your general work. And that's something that I've found uh, works really well. So, you know, whether it's, I did Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for a while, um, till my wife made me stop cause I kept, kept getting hurt. Um, you know, for, I did a triathlon once. Um, so right now I'm doing a lot of more like gymnastics strength holds and, and, uh, doing a lot on the rogue echo bike, but you know, just the whole while staying consistent. Like I, ne I never just went and solely did one thing. Very cool. Very cool. So it's kind of like, um, you know, finding like a, a new goal, something new and interesting to always keep you kind of engaged um, uh, apart from the GPP. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of stole the idea from a friend of mine, Brian Shantosh, because he would, he would do these yearly challenges. Like one year, I think it was a row of million meters. And then oh, one no. year it was like as many rounds of Cindy as possible in a year. <laughs> and I, never, I never signed up for any of these, but at the same time, I thought it was like, that's an interesting idea, a yearly challenge. So, you know, like one year I had to do 10 SOTS press every workout. Like didn't matter oh, wow. what way, I just had to do 10 SOTS press, you know, so just things like that. Uh, keep it interesting. That's super cool. That's super cool. Um, and, and so I wanted to kind of transition a little bit. You wrote a piece on kind of modern life, um, on Medium a while back, where you talk about kind of, you know, health span, you know, has our health span gotten longer or, you know, so it's always like this battle between the mathematicians and, uh, you know, the biologists, you know, are, are people getting, are people living longer? Or is it just, you know, we, we're fixing infant mortality and we're getting better at, you know, trauma surgery, things like that. Um, do you think there have been real gains in terms of, um, you know, I guess, qualities in people's life? So just like the, you know, maybe we live longer, but we live worse. Do you think there it's that we're actually better off now than when we were, you know, hunter gatherers and we'd all run and, you know, run, you know, a couple hours a day, run down some antelope and then eat it and, you know, just hang out the rest of the time? <laughs> That's a great question. I, you know, like I personally would not like to go back to those days, but I will say this, you know, I think the Steven Pinkers of the world, if you just listen to them and the numbers that they cherry pick, I think you get a very misleading impression. You know, for example, it, when they talk about how conflict has decreased, well, there's a whole lot of statistical issues with that, like starting from, you know, just the way they calculate the numbers killed in older generations of war. You know, it's very hard to get an accurate count of how many people were killed 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And then, you know, secondly, as Nassim Talib has pointed out, you know, these, these things, these massive casualty events um, tend to fall like they're fat tail events. Like, gotcha. I don't want to say black swan because they're not really, they're kind of <laughs> right. 
But, um, you know, so, hey, we've had a 75 or whatever it is year run with a, without a world war, but, you know, there might be a nuclear Armageddon in our future within the next 50 to 100 years. Like, we can't rule that out. So just to, to try to draw trends, you know, based off, based off of just like the past 75 years and then project that forward seems a little naive. I'm kind of butchering Nassim Taleb's argument. So definitely check out what he's written about that. You know, that's, so that's one point. The other point would be um, like looking at the quality of life and health span, as you said, um, clearly there's been a massive increase in chronic diseases, uh, obesity, type two diabetes, heart disease, cancers. Um, so the question is always, okay, we might be living longer on average, but how many of, how much of that time is actually spent doing what we want to do in a healthy state? Gotcha. So I was being intentionally provocative in my article. Um, obviously, I, you know, I wouldn't, if I could live in a, if I had the opportunity to go back and be a hunter-gatherer and press a button, I wouldn't want to. But I, I do think that the argument on the other side has been severely overstated and overlooks it, some pretty significant um, facts. And oftentimes it's portrayed as this romantic thing, like, oh, you're just like Rousseau, right? Like you, you believe in right. this global savage. Like, no, I'm like, I'm talking about real numbers, you know, like right. I'm, I'm talking about like a, a six-fold increase in the number of people with type two diabetes, you know, since the seventies, like that's a real thing. I'm talking about three consecutive years of declining life expectancy, you know, the longest consecutive decline in US life expectancy in a hundred years since the Spanish flu. Like these things are really happening. But, you know, on the other hand, you can't deny that there has been like massive, massive progress in other areas at the same time. Definitely. That's a really good point. And, you know, just anecdotally, if you go, so where my dad is sitting right now in eastern North Carolina. So I'm in a metro area. Russ, I'm assuming you're in D.C., so a metro area. If yes, you sir. go out, you know, like 20, 30 miles out in these more rural areas, you know, the the downtowns look bombed out and the people look bombed out, you know, opioid the opioid epidemic, uh, people are just, you know, they're overweight. Um, and there's all these kinds of problems where just health seems to have just declined over the past, you know, I don't know, I have a short time span, I've been alive, so I can't, you know, speak. But yeah. um, anecdotally, it seems to be the case. I mean, if you listen to guys like Peter Thiel, Ross Douthat, um, you know, there's an increasing chorus of people who are skeptical about the amount of progress we've made in the last, say, 30 to 50 years. I think you could put me in that camp. I, I usually don't agree with the measures they recommend to fix it, but just, you know, be, it, being skeptical about how much meaningful progress we've made in quality of life and length of life. Yeah. I, I think you could put me in that camp. Super cool. And so kind of transitioning um, from that. So, so what's kind of the biggest misconception about diet and exercise that the lay person just gets plain wrong? <laughs> I think people don't understand uh, the law of diminishing rates of return. Okay. Right. Um, so it's an economics concept, right? But like generally the idea is um, the, the easiest hundred pounds to add to your deadlift or your first hundred pounds, obviously like 200, right. 300, it's going to be like two months. You know, you're just going to learn how to do it. Boom. And 300 to 400, you might have to get a little more serious and start coming to the gym on a regular basis. Right. Still it's, you know, it's not going to be that hard. 400 to 500, you know, if you get there, that's going to take some meaningful training. 
And then right. 500 to 600, like strap in, man. <laughs> like, right. Here we go. Like, unless you're really like genetically gifted or like a power lifter, like that's, that's going to be a challenge. So it takes significantly more commitment and dedication and risk of injury and all these other things just to increase every additional unit. And, and that holds whether it's deadlifts, marathons, every single thing you could imagine. At the same time, there's not just diminishing rates of return to training, but diminishing rates of return to performance. Interesting. And what I mean by that is the first hundred pounds you add to your deadlift are the most important for your quality of life. Uh, every, every hundred pounds you add after that transfers less. And eventually that curve turns negative, right? It turns downward. So eventually you're trying to add more weight to your deadlift and it's actually making your life worse. <laughs> you know, you can put a lot of power lifters in that category, right? Or conversely, like, you know, like you take your mile from like seven minutes to six minutes. Fantastic. Even six minutes to five minutes. Like that's great. Then you want to get down to like four flat, like, <laughs> Like we're talking like running 75 miles a week. You're probably going to hurt yourself. You know, it's like, yeah, it's amazing. But, you know, unless you're a runner and you're getting paid to do that, or you're just like, this is the passion of your life. Is it worth it? So there's, I don't think people have put together that not only is it going to take more and more work to make, to make each additional unit of gain, but that additional unit actually is contributing less and less to your overall life. And in fact, it will eventually become detrimental at some point, right? Like the, the guys who deadlift 750 pounds are not very fit overall, right? Trade-offs, yeah. there's trade-offs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guys, the guys who are, you know, winning marathons overall are not very fit in an overall sense. Now, there are ways to like sort of try to game that. Like, I think that CrossFit, one of the benefits of CrossFit is, you know, like when you focus on more of a mixed modal type of performance, there is more of a linear relation, at least at first, between your performance and your quality of life. Like, it's hard to say that you're going to be so good at Helen or Fran that, you know, it's just making you unable to do the activities of daily life or, you know, like unable to pick up a martial art or learn a new sport. But at the same time, I still think there's diminishing marginal returns. So the reason this is so like, this sounds really abstract, but like, I think everyone experiences this. Maybe they just don't have a word for it. Like the first six months when you're working out, it's amazing. You're PRing every single day. Right. And then you keep doing that, whatever your activity is, whether it's CrossFit or weightlifting, whatever, you keep doing it over and over again and you're not getting the same results. And, and it's like, people get frustrated or they push themselves too hard and they get injured. And um, if they, people thought more about diminishing rates of return, you know, I think they would be able to think more logically about their training. Super interesting. That's a, that's a great point. It, it's also, uh, I think it highlights it's important to go do something and like show up every day and, um, and keep working at it, but not maybe obsess over, you know, you know, chasing crazy numbers and things like that. Yeah, that's a mistake I've definitely made. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. 
I, I think I, I've, I've invested more <laughs> time, energy, stress into exercise than, it, than I probably should have given just like my inherent lack of genetic talent. Yeah. Right. It's important to realize that. Yeah. That's <laughs> always, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, longevity dropping the diabetes rate, um, you know, six times. Is that what you said? Uh, since six 19? Old. Yeah. It's six it, old. Yeah. A, a large hard number. Who to trust, but you know, generally it's like two percent to twelve percent of the population with diagnosed type two diabetes, as I recall. Man, that's that's just it's just yeah, it's mind blowing. Uh, what do you think has gone so wrong? You know, and and how does the the food and beverage industry kind of play into that? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because you look at. You, you listen to all these stories of decline, whether people are talking about stagnation in science and technology, they're talking about what they think's gone wrong with the economy, um, political discourse in America, e even you look at like Pew, Pew like polls Americans to see how much they trust various institutions in the federal government. And like since the 1970s, it's gone from like 80% to 18%. Wow. Like any story you look at, you look really in depth at the narrative of like when things went wrong. It's always right. like 1972 or 73. Roughly. Right. And nutrition's the same. Like you look at the big <laughs> narratives about like what went wrong. And it's like, yeah, you know, if, uh, you know, they changed the farm bill for one. Obviously, the farm bill is just this massive, like crony mess of like subsidies and and loan guarantees and quotas and originally they were mostly paying farmers not to produce and then nixon and i think it was 72 or 73 went from sort of a minimalist policy to a maximalist policy so he basically wanted farmers to maximize production and he was going to pay them to produce more corn soy wheat etc than they would produce under normal market conditions. So you look even at Marion Nessel's book, like Food Politics, and she really starts the story around that era in the 1970s. Obviously, you have the dietary guidelines happening around then. You know, you have high fructose corn syrup really coming around. There's a bunch of, my point is, you know, I would be skeptical of single cause narratives it seems like a whole bunch of things happened at this, you know, this single decade. And then the, the type two diabetes and obesity rates just skyrocketed. Craziness. And, and, so, and so maybe it's like, you know, artificially cheap sugar. And, you know, I, I know they, they've been dumping dairy because they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, things like that. So that's super interesting. So government policy may have played a role to a certain extent. And so. I mean, it definitely, it definitely failed. You know, you look at even the defenders of the dietary guidelines and they say, hey, look, don't blame the dietary guidelines. No one followed them. <laughs> like, well, you may be right. But that also means they were an abject failure. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't change the fact. Exactly. They're wrong. <laughs> exactly. Not, not, a, not a super, super argument. Um, so I, I want to transition a little bit and um, talk. So you've worked a lot with the um, on you know, problems related to the NSCA and, and big sugar and, and the CDC and the NIH. What are kind of the most shocking things to you that you found or that uh, the average person just wouldn't expect, um, I guess? 
Yeah. Honestly, the most shocking thing I found is that Congress tells government agencies to do things all the time and they just don't do them. Really? It happens all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, I just found this out the other day. Congress has told HHS on four separate occasions, hey guys, we really need a centralized disease surveillance database. They've said that since like 2006. They even allocated funding for it. And CDC like kind of, or not CDC, HHS kind of like convened a committee or something, but there's like four different government accountability office reports saying like, guys, you never did this. You never even tried. Like what's going on? (laughs) And and nobody cares. Because it doesn't like, this actually gets into what you guys are talking about. You know, like right now we have so much information but people are blind to it because if it doesn't fit the single narrative that they can pay attention to at one time, whether it's blame the Republicans or blame the Democrats, they don't want to have any time for it. And the problem is the, the problems that we're talking about, whether it's public health agencies or, you know, obesity, diabetes, if you look at them on graphs, they don't go up during a Democratic presidency and then down during a Republican one. They trend in a negative direction regardless of who's in charge. So it doesn't really fit the convenient narratives. Like for, for example, right now, there's a lot of people upset about uh, Trump's relationship with the CDC and they're, they're right to be. But if anyone's thinking that Biden's gonna come in and the CDC is gonna be suddenly a hyper-efficient organization, I mean, it's not, just look at the historical record. So one of the surprising things we found um, researching this was that CDC and NIH have um, foundations set up by Congress and partially funded by Congress that are nonetheless designated uh, non-governmental. The British would refer to these types of organizations as quangos, quasi non-governmental organizations. And they are not bound by Freedom of Information Act rules, first of all. And then second of all, what their function is these quangos is to raise money from outside sources. So like foreign governments like Saudi Arabia or or like corporations that couldn't donate directly to FDA or CDC or whoever, but they can donate to the CDC foundation or the NIH foundation. And it's not, you, you can't do a freedom of information act request about it, at least not directly. And these uh, foundations are required by Congress to annually report to Congress, as well as to the public when they ask um, where the money's coming from, how much and what it's being used for. And the shocking thing that um, we found when I was working for CrossFit is that they just don't do this. Oh, wow. And, And then we went to Congress and we told them that and Congress asked them to start doing it and they didn't do it. So, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. oh, God. It, yeah. Oh. One more thing, because like people often say like, well, you know, you're just you're just tracking the money. You're not proving that any actual fraud happened or things like that. We also found like a lot of discrepancies in their data. Like we, we noticed that every single time the CDC reported a disease prevalence like type two diabetes or obesity, and there was an independent group of academics that also looked at the same um, problem and tried to estimate a, a rate, a prevalence rate. The CDC number was always like off. 
by like 25% compared to the independent guys. Always. Oh God. Yeah, it was weird. You know, like in, in Florida, the CDC estimate of like the state diabetes rate, it was something like 29%, uh, sorry, obesity rate. It was something like 29%. And then some independent researchers went and looked and they just looked at medical records. They had thousands and thousands of data points. And they were like, they were like yeah, the CDC is off by like 25%. Like what's going on? And, and we found a similar thing with uh, type two diabetes, like uh, Gallup's type two diabetes estimate for the United States, which by the way, they're calling up like 180,000 people, like super oh, wow. large. Men. Yeah. Huge. It was like 14% and the CDC estimate was 12%. And then you look into the CDC's data and they have all these caveats like, oh, we're using data from five years ago, but just projecting it forward as if nothing's changed. It's like you can't do that. Wow! It's it's a it it it's almost it's even more intractable than one would imagine because it's it's not at the level of you know, uh, let alone you know, uh, incumbency re-election rates are super high for Congress, even though the uh, our approval keeps going down, which is very interesting. Uh, but. Let, let alone that, you know, it, it's at the level of the unelected bureaucracies. It's just like, it, what, what could you do? I mean, wow. Yeah. That's super interesting. Pastor Collison has suggested that we just like break them up. Like I have like 10 NIHs, <laughs> 20 of them. <laughs> I mean, that would be a fun experiment. So <laughs> hilarious. NIH one, two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, actually in North Carolina, we had a pretty good idea. I don't know if this is actually the reason why they did this, but they moved the DMV from Raleigh to Capitol to where my dad's sitting in Rocky Mount. And, uh, you know, essentially 70% of the bureaucracy just quit. And so you get to actually rebuild. So maybe, maybe the answer is you just, you just move them, move them around. This is bye bye DC. Hello, Kansas city. I think Tyler Cowan actually has talked about that, but. Um, yeah. There, there's some like budget reorganizations they could, they could do too. But uh, like I was looking at the CDC's budget, just thinking about COVID and I was like, what percentage of their budget is going towards inf emerging infectious diseases? Yeah. I don't remember exactly what it was, but something like 10%. Oh, wow. And you would think that that would be their like number one thing. The Centers for Disease Control. <laughs> yeah, like that's what they were set up to do, right? Like initially yeah. to control malaria in the 40s, right? Yeah. And so why are they like, why, are C why is CDC the one looking into vaping? Why is CDC the one looking into occupational hazards? Like I'm not saying no one should study these things, but it's like, hey, focus on, focus on priority number one here. You know, like and clearly at this point, you can't say that, you know, we can afford to get distracted, right? Like after the, the CDC COVID test oh, didn't no. work for oh, weeks while the rest oh, of the world's testing like thousands of people and our tests just don't work. I mean, yeah. Just, it, it's bananas. Um, and uh, wow. Well, yeah. And just for the uh, listeners. Yeah. So there's this, this whole debacle where the CDC was, uh, you know, no, we won't use uh, anyone else's test. We're going to develop our own test for COVID. And then it didn't work. And then we're weeks when weeks behind. And then we end up where we're sitting now with 220,000 deaths. Um, it, it's, it's an open question. How much of a difference it would have made? Would have made? Fair enough. I, I don't, I don't honestly have an answer to that. I don't really like I'm by no means am I a COVID expert. It's just clear that, you know, that's a troubling sign. Yes. Something, right? Something's the, wrong. Yeah. yeah. Something's very wrong. Um, when their primary function, they can't execute upon it. 
Um, su- super interesting. So um, moving from that, uh, from the government side um, to kind of the corporate side, it, you know, the food and beverage industry, is there anything people should be concerned about there um, or any policy interventions you would recommend? I, I'm assuming you're, you're fairly libertarian. You're talking to Tyler Cowan. I don't want to paint you as anything, but um, um, so I, I don't know what your policy recommendations might look like, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you got to start with first do no harm. So it's an open question, you know, or it's a matter of debate to what extent the farm bill, you know, farm subsidies in America are actually contributing to the problem. But let's find out, you know, because right now the problem is, is we generally subsidize unhealthy food, you know, corn, wheat, soy. And whereas something like fresh fruits and vegetables can't they're like designated specialty crops and they don't get subsidized so that seems like a mistake um beyond that what what worries me personally is how successful um the coca-cola exercises medicine campaign was because what it's really urging is the medicalization of exercise and, can you just uh, can you mention yeah. what the the Coca Cola exercise uh, county yeah. you know, calorie offset thing was? The, the Energy Balance Network is that what you're talking about? Oh, oh, sorry, yeah. no, I'm um, just Coca Cola um, exercises medicine. Is ex- that what yeah, right before that there was because um, I remember in Walmart I distinctly have this memory of in Walmart on all the Coke uh, machines they had cool. um, you know these labels. It's like maybe it was like balance your calories or something, or it's like if you exercise enough you can. Yeah. Oh, the, I think you're talking about the Global Energy Balance Network. Maybe so. Yeah. And that was, I guess, if I recall correctly, it was them trying to get a group of scientists together that um, would focus on energy balance as the solution to chronic diseases, which is gotcha. an interesting thing because, like, obviously, energy balance matters and getting people to exercise more would be a good thing. On the other hand, to give anyone the impression that that is sufficient, that would be misleading because you can be normal weight and have type two diabetes. You can be a very active person and be pre-diabetic or have other chronic conditions. So it's not simply enough to exercise more if you're going to persist in a very unhealthy diet. Um, The reason the exercises medicine stuff is more concerning to me even than that is that was really looking at merging the fitness industry and exercise in general into the healthcare establishment like insurance insurance billing and you know occupational licensure and all these regulations and you know getting third-party payment obviously involved so that to me seemed like a disaster and and it still does quite frankly and um i don't first of all i don't think it would work i think if you look at the data you know just simply your doctor telling you to exercise is not very effective even paying people's gym memberships is not very effective because you know if if you take someone who doesn't go to the gym and then you give them a free gym membership that doesn't make them suddenly start going right right it's a whole other problem yeah, so it's it's really sort of j- just uh, corporate welfare for like wh- whatever gyms manage to get in s- into the system. Planet Fitness. Yeah, and then if you start thinking like, well, how would they, how would you actually really 
try to incorporate exercise into medicine, it probably would involve more of like a technological solution. And gotcha. if you look at their papers, like the exercises medicine papers, they start talking about this where it's like, yeah, we want to include measures of physical activity in your electronic health records. And I think that starts getting into some interesting like privacy questions because it's, it's like we really want to require or strongly incentivize people to be uploading to the government or to a vulnerable, you know, uh, IT system, you know, where they are and what they're doing at any point in time. Uh, and I just, that doesn't seem effective either at the same time, because we know these devices that they use to measure physical activity just aren't very accurate, especially when it comes to like um, functional exercises, you know, like, like body, let's say you were to do a, a, a circuit of like, you know, air squats and pushups and burpees like your, your Fitbit has a very hard time or, or whatever device you use, they have a very hard time actually calculating how much work you're doing. Gotcha. Generally they're more effective when you're just like transversing ground. But um, you know, if you're just like staying in place, but working really hard, it, it doesn't know. Makes sense. Yeah. So that's when you, so that's where you talk about kind of wearables. I know you wrote an article on that. Um, yeah. It's super interesting. I know um, um, my mom, she, um, she wears like a pedometer and she gets like a dollar a day if she hits a certain number of steps back from the insurance company, which is like just kind of, kind yeah. of scary and, and bizarre. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's interesting, interesting to see where things go, especially if we ever get to single pair in the United States, you know, yeah. combine those two things seems like that could be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So there's several trends going on that worry me and I'm a worrier. So like, it's good to worry. Take sometimes. my worries with a grain of salt, but at the same time, I am worried. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's good. So, so you know, one of the trends is, as you said, yeah, towards greater centralization of healthcare. Um, another trend that's happening at the same time is, is you know, as you indicated with that example, that insurance companies are getting more involved in monitoring activity, nutrition, lifestyle in general. And then secondly, or thirdly, rather, the technology they're using to do so is getting more and more intrusive. So it, they're developing devices now that are tracking like biomarkers, you know, like, for example, oh, wow. they think that they can test your sweat and know your cortisol level, you know, uh, know, you know, basically trying to, the goal eventually is to be able to know what's going on inside your body 24 seven. And it's really the combination of those three trends that's concerning to me. If someone just wants to have a device and it's between them and themselves or them and their doctor, and it's letting them know, you know, like, hey, I, I might be having something abnormal is going on with my heart right now. Like, yeah, yeah sure, I, t I totally get that. But when it starts becoming this centralized system, especially a government controlled system of, you know, millions of people and their insides, are being monitored 24 seven. So we know when they're under stress, you know, we know when they're using drugs and alcohol, uh, we know where they are. We, we know what type of activity even they're doing. Um, that, uh, first of all, I, I just, I don't think that's gonna make people healthier. I'm skeptical on that end. Right. And then secondly, I, even if it were to, um, the privacy and government control implications of that to me are quite frightening. No, I think that's, 
that's a really that's a really good point. And um, yeah, you know, you see in communist China everything they're doing with tracking people and you know using AI to really, yeah, clamp down. It's super authoritarian and, and super scary at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and COVID's kind of been like a convenient excuse for some of that stuff. Like you see people now using these wearable devices, you know, supposedly to prevent COVID, but you know, and these totalitarian regimes, like, does anyone have any confidence that, you know, the use of these bracelets or whatever it is they're using is just gonna stop once COVID's over? They're gonna find a new reason to have you wear that, I promise. Exactly. So keep yeah. it going. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've uh, we, we did recorded a pod, podcast on. I, I worked in China for a little bit um, a couple of years ago, um, and we recorded a podcast on the Uyghur persecution in Western China, and it's just it, it's insane to think about. You know, just what what a government can do, and they they kind of have that much power, and they know that much about you, and how easy it is um, to kind of flip that switch. Yeah, and that's a, that's the flip side of like what we were talking about with the United States being in. It seems to me, if not decline, then in stagnation. Um, the flip side is, is that the world's looking to China right now, I think, because they seem relative to us more like a success story, more dynamic, you know, right. and uh, that, that's a troublesome precedent. Yes. Um, I don't exactly know what the right response is. The right response probably is for us to get our acts together first. Right, like right. <laughs> fix fix yourself. Look internally. Yeah. A lot of our problems seem to be self-inflicted, not China-inflicted. <laughs> right, man, like, we yeah. keep shooting ourselves in the foot. It really hurts, yeah. man. China didn't make us invade Iraq, and it didn't make us, you know, eat 150 grams of sugar every day. That's for sure. <laughs> right, but man, we're doing it. That's for sure. Super interesting. Um, so I wanted to kind of let's see transition. Let me see up my notes here so um now i wanted to kind of i've got it this little section overrated or underrated um have you listened to conversations with tyler before i have yes any chance okay so i, I stole it blatantly from him um so if you want to just yeah answer overrated underrated and give a brief explanation if you have one um i think that that'd be super cool um so the first one is aerobic capacity yeah um as it's commonly understood, overrated, just simply because there's so much skill and stamina involved with each specific discipline that it's very, the amount of transfer you get, say, from running to swimming or vice versa is actually pretty disappointing. Like if you look at when Lance Armstrong went to run a marathon, you know, he did well, like he's a good runner, but like he yeah. was an hour off the best guys and this is like he's the best cyclist or one of the best cyclists of all time and he was a very talented triathlete before becoming a cyclist so you know so other similar examples like michael phelps his coaches wouldn't even let him run because he would fall down so much oh my God. <laughs> like, you know so i think if by aerobic capacity you mean that you think that by doing a single discipline that that's going to transfer broadly i would be skeptical However, if by aerobic capacity, you mean I'm going to train several different things and develop a broad base of aerobic capacity, you know, that makes more sense to me. Super. Yeah, I, I saw this great study where um, swimmers' hearts develop differently than runners. They were just comparing swimmers and runners. And uh, it, part of it might be, you know, what angle you're sitting at when you're exercising. But it's, uh, it's yeah. A friend of mine was a state champion swimmer in high school, and he tried to go to the Naval Academy, and he yeah. couldn't pass their PT test. Oh God, that's amazing! <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't. He couldn't do the run. 
under the whatever the cutoff time was a mile and a half run and like I think it was like really slow like 10 30 or something 11 i don't know and he just couldn't do it and this guy swimming three hours a day oh that's amazing that's amazing yeah it's tough to grok though that i mean that concept that's very tough to grok uh, that that doesn't transfer yet uh david and i i saw chris henshaw and went to an aerobic capacity seminar a while back and he was like yeah you know you have to practice each thing individually because they don't transfer and i'm just like sitting there like what like it really doesn't make much sense but then you go try it and it sure makes a little yeah. bit more sense then. i mean that's a really sad thing about the crossfit games is like we we genuinely thought that the crossfit games were going to help us discover like new ways of training more effectively yeah and maybe it did that a little bit but mostly what we discovered was hey if you want to get good at everything you <laughs> do everything all oh, the time <laughs> like all right oh fine god <laughs> no shortcuts man <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's a great point oh my god um anyway so the next one i've got here is the paleo diet overrated underrated gosh i don't know what i, I don't know what say it, what it is yeah I, I think to me that's the problem with it um you know every this happens to every diet they get bastardized right, right. Like they start they make the keto ice cream or the, the paleo donuts and and it's like <laughs> the, the vegan brownies whatever it is and it's like you know the first year your whatever your diet is it works really well for you we're getting back to diminishing returns right and then right. figure out all the ways to like stay cheat <laughs> stay keto vegan paleo and still eat food that's bad for you and then you're like, why am I gaining weight? I'm staying strict keto, vegan, paleo. And right. it's like, well, I think you know why. <laughs> I think you know the truth. Yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting. So what do, you, what do you personally do now? What's your regimen look like? Like for exercise or nutrition? Uh, nutrition. Yeah. Um, so my wife and I are in like this sort of death march where we stopped eating like or consciously eating added sugar about four years ago. Oh, nice. And I must admit, I broke down once. One time. But I will not break down twice because she's never broken down. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and that would just be shameful. Yes. So that is the main reason. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, uh, and, you know, Gary Taubes, who, you know, he and I argue a lot, but one thing that he says that I think is very accurate is, um, when you cut out added sugar, it takes a lot of other bad things with it. Uh, right? It's hard to eat much processed food at all of any kind if you're not going to have added sugar, right? So even if the right. problem is overeating or too many calories or say, what are they talking about now? Like processed food oils. Yeah. All these things sort of go together because first of all, sugar is going to make you eat more generally. That's why they put it in food right interesting so so um what has it been hard to not eat added sugar or to, at a certain point are you just kind of like this is what i do i forgot who said it but you know none is easier than some that yeah i definitely believe that i'm a big believer yeah big believer in that very cool um okay let's see the next one the foreign policy establishment of the united states oh my god <laughs> okay so I must admit, I used to be a neocon. So this is personal for me. 
Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I know these guys that I fell for them and their lies. <laughs> their li- <laughs> <laughs> I would say they're highly overrated. I mean, just look at the record, right? Like, yeah. how many wars has the United States entered and like definitively won since World War II? I don't know, one, maybe? Yeah. I mean, it depends on what you want to classify as a war, but it, we're like one out of four, one out of five. Um, not good. And it's not just that you don't win. It's like, well, why are you even there? You right. Know, what, what is it? Why, why have we been in Afghanistan since 2001? I mean, I could try to, I could try to give you some reasons, but none are going to be very convincing. You know, especially when you consider that this almost this whole time we were sending billions of dollars to Pakistan, which was sending it right back across the border to the Taliban, which they were using to kill U.S. troops and Afghan civilians. Um, Yeah, if if you read like Steve Cole's book, Director at S, which is about the war in Afghanistan, um, it's hard to come away from that with any respect for the foreign policy establishment, because you got to remember, you know, the war in Iraq became controversial, you know, even though yes, Hillary Clinton supported it, it became controversial pretty quickly, but Afghanistan was like the good war for a while, you know, even like 2008, nine, 10. And when you read what actually happened and what, what officials knew versus what they were publicly saying, uh, and then you consider the fact that we still haven't gotten out yet and that it's sort of like the default position in DC right now that we should stay. I mean, that is, it's hard to explain. I mean, because it's like, okay, there's some terrorists there. Do you know how many country there, countries there are terrorists in? We can occupy all of them. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mauritania? Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Oh man. So what do you, this befuddles me and, and I, you've been connected more to this than, than you might have some idea about this. Well, what happened between, you know, so we, we rebuilt Germany and we rebuilt Japan and we went in, you know, we got rid of, you know, the government and rebuilt the government and they worked great. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan, we have not been able to do that at all. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think part of the answer is that nation building probably just has a low percentage gain most of the time. Gotcha. So we just got really lucky. Yeah, but th- there's other people who just say, you know, I don't want to call it a racist point of view, but they do tend to say that, you know, well, Afghanistan and Iraq are not Japan and Germany. They're inherently underdeveloped or undereducated, you know, civilizations or whatever. Uh, from my experience with Iraqis, that's not true. They tend to be very well-educated people. You know, they, their country was actually doing fairly well prior to Saddam Hussein. Vibrant think, middle class. Yeah. It, even Afghanistan, like you look back 50 years ago, was doing pretty well. And, and Central Asia throughout history actually had some bright spots. You know, Definitely. like where the Central Asian golden age, like Zoroastrianism comes from there. Um, quite a few important figures in, in philosophy and mathematics uh, were in Central Asia. So, you know, I don't think you can just write them off. Uh, another explanation that people give is, you know, artificial borders. And that's true. But, like, all borders are artificial. 
<laughs> right. Like God didn't design them. Right. So who, who do you think did? Yes. <laughs> 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 so have we lost some, some amount of state capacity? Uh, uh, yeah, yes, I think we have, but uh, I don't know that we want to re- get much better at nation building. I, I think if we're going to talk about uh, rebuilding state capacity in the United States, I think what we have to recognize is that we have a very high degree of state capacity. It's just been exerted towards the wrong things, right? Like the Joint Special Operations Command is very effective. Right, <laughs> super effective. Right? Yeah, the National Security <laughs> Agency, they are good at what they do. They really are, okay? You know, we've spent 6.5 or whatever it is, trillion dollars on the global war on terror. Like th- this idea, like the government just doesn't have any money or qualified people. <laughs> it's like, no, we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. You know, we've been, you know, like not just the war on drugs that we've been doing, which has cost billions and billions of dollars. We're not just doing it in our own country. We're doing that in Colombia and Afghanistan and Mexico, all over the world, you know, for no obvious reason. So it's less that we just lack state capacity. And I think it's more of a misallocation of resources. Gotcha. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah, it seems this, this huge shift when you look at the New Deal and everything we built the New Deal. I was just on the Blue Ridge Parkway and, and it's like beautiful and they just carved it through mountains and all this stuff. And like now it's like, man, I can't imagine them trying to do this today. It would be uh, quite expensive. Um, yeah, I mean, there's all these rules now about how much you have to pay federal contractors and there's all these, you know, permits and restrictions and zoning laws. I mean, that definitely those things all definitely play a role and I I don't want to downplay them. But I also see a lot of the inherent problem of just like, we turned our focus elsewhere. Right, that makes sense. If if we were less focused on Trump, on the global war on terror or whatever, you know, or the war on drugs, we would have had to direct that attention, those monies elsewhere, probably internally. And I think we would have used them more wisely. I mean, it would have been hard not to have. Right. That, that's a really good point. It almost seems like Washington, you know, a, a lot of people and bureaucrats in Washington are interested in ruling the world more than fixing America, maybe. I don't know. That may be a weird way to put it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I want them to try to fix America either. So. Right. Fair enough. Right. You know, it's right off. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, like, you know, we were talking about the CDC's budget, like, I wouldn't mind increasing the CDC's budget for, you know, emerging infectious diseases, like even like three or four fold. Sure. That, I think that would make sense. That would be, we'd get a good ROI on that. But um, I think the problem is, is, is just mission creep and everything. You know, you look at almost any, at any agency and whatever it was originally founded to do is just a, usually just a small percentage of what it actually does. Gotcha. You know, like what percentage do you think of the defense budget is actually legitimately spent on things directly tied to defending United States? <laughs> oh God. Hate to imagine. Right? <laughs> That's a problem. Yep. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a big problem. That's cool. Super cool. So we got uh, one more overrated or underrated. Um, the CrossFit games, overrated or underrated? For who? That's my Ooh. question. Ooh, that's a good question. That's a great question. For, for, the, for the health of CrossFit Inc., overrated i believe that um and i would say that because you know look i saw the books right and um 
I, Tommy Marquez, Sean Woodland, um, you know, they've talked a little bit about how, you know, there were some possible deals on the table that could have made the CrossFit games more profitable. I mean, they would have closed the gap, but they wouldn't have come anywhere near to accounting for all the expenses once you fully accounted for the expenses. Right. I don't want to get into accounting too much, but like there's a difference between direct and indirect costs, right? There's the money that just the CrossFit games spend, but then there's the amount that legal has to do to handle compliance. And then HR is doing to support the games, like every department of the company is supporting them. And it ends up coming out to a whole lot. And then, you know, the argument would be, well, it's bringing more attention to the affiliates, it's helping training. Um, I think that's maybe true to an extent, but um, I also think that it came at a very high opportunity cost in terms of of staff attention, time, and money. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. And and also, so games are cool, like I love the games, but it also, it it almost so kind of hurt because, you know, when I'm trying to convince my um, seven-year-old grandmother that she would it would be great for her to go to CrossFit and like they'll work with her and she's infinitely scalable and you know uh, it would be really helpful she's like well I saw it on TV and like these people are nuts man you know yeah it's Russ yeah. Green up there on TV like good god I can't I can't replicate that you know, <laughs> like, TV, guys. <laughs> like, you know? this is the second time I've had to correct your your <laughs> that's right that's <laughs> <laughs> super cool but <laughs> But that makes a yeah, lot of but sense. Yeah, you know, I've heard that anecdotally as well. I've heard that, you know, from affiliate owners. But, you know, I got to say, like, uh, I know some other affiliate owners that do say that the CrossFit Games help bring people in the door. What, what I would say, though, that is that CrossFit over the past, gosh, seven years faced some pretty significant challenges. And um, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it faced a challenge of bad press surrounding injuries, which, you know, as – anyone who's followed me knows, you know, a lot of that was ginned up, you know, through fake research lies, but nonetheless, you know, CrossFit affiliates had to face that, that people were coming or reluctant to come to their gyms because they thought it was dangerous. You know, at the same time, if you understand the natural life cycle of disruptive firms, right, they have a huge advantage in the beginning because no one's caught quite on to their, right, to what's working, natural sauces, right. And then all the rest of the firms start imitating right? So they buy the road gear, you know, they even right. get CrossFit on one trainers, they start running cross functional fitness classes, right? Yeah. And it becomes a lot harder to maintain your competitive position in the marketplace. So CrossFit was really facing these two challenges. And I mean, what, what meaningful investments did it really make to counteract either of them? Uh, I'd be hard pressed, you know, to, to say like, obviously, yes, I was involved in trying to correct the record, but you know, it's not like, it's not like there were ads reaching millions of people that were correcting misperceptions about CrossFit or, you know, there wasn't a massive overhaul of the training department to, you know, to make sure that CrossFit trainers would have um, skills and knowledge that, would make them like heads and shoulders of ev- of everything else available in the fitness industry. I think it's possible to do that. It would have been possible to do that because honestly, I don't have a very 
high estimation of the rest of the fitness industry. And I do think that within the, like the CrossFit doctrine, is it more than enough space to, for innovation and experimentation, if you think about the open source concept. But okay. like when people talk about the challenges that CrossFit face, they usually start their story like two years ago. And it's like, no, you guys are giving us way too much slack. <laughs> <laughs> like the problems in my estimation uh, really started around 2013. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. This, it seemed like maybe there's a branching path between uh, the sport and um, you know, getting it to everyday people, maybe, maybe a little bit. I don't know. It, it, and it seemed like there's almost a certain amount of saturation with high school athletes. So we got like everyone that was a high school athlete that can't like, you know, anymore. And then like, it's like, well, glory days, glory days, bro. <laughs> glory days right? Yeah, exactly. You know, we've all been in uh, the gym during the open, you know, Friday night lights. That's, that's pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, the, the new guy, Eric, he seems yeah. to think that these goals are compatible. You might be right. I mean, he's a successful businessman. I hope, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And, you know, you can't say that CrossFit Inc. before did everything it could have to fully leverage the games. So, you know, maybe there is a path forward that, that reconciles those two different objectives. But, you know, I, I'm going to believe it when I see it. Smart. That's smart. Russ, I'm going to ask you um, to tell us more about, you, you mentioned an emphasis on the rogue cycle, echo cycle. Is echo bite. Echo bite. Yeah. Yes. So what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I realize that my competitive advantage in fitness is that I can literally do the same thing every single day and not get bored. That's awesome. Actually, I'm a creature of habit. Like it's reassuring to me. Like if I do 30 minutes on the echo bike every day, I am a happy person. If I, if I miss my 30 minutes, I am a sad person. <laughs> it's that so, simple. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yeah, I'm not that great at learning new movements and I'm never going to be the strongest or fastest guy. But if it just comes, you know, just comes down to doing work every single day, the same kind of work, I'm pretty good at that. Um, and obviously that has something to do with my, you know, athletic background as well. You know, um, starting cross country when I, when I was like, what? 10 years old, 11 years old, you know, um, but yeah, what I've been doing is just 30 minutes a day, like a moderate pace. And then just once I can, and I track calories per minute. So I started at 11 calories a minute and it would just check my heart rate at the end. And once I can consistently hold a pace and my heart rate's always like low, at the end, like a 130, 140, below 150, then I bump it up either a calorie a minute or half a calorie a minute. And now I'm at, so I went from like 11 to 13 and a half. And uh, I mean, it's just, I'm just experimenting. Like I, please don't hear me and think that like I found the elixir, you know? We found, we got it. <laughs> yeah. We're sending David to 60 plus, you know, next year. <laughs> Got it, man. <laughs> That's super cool. That's super cool. Well, I just had a, I had one more question for you. Dave, in, um, unless dad, you had any other questions? Um, it's just interesting because since I don't go into the gym with a lot of people at this point, primarily because of my age, um, 
what I went to was the, uh, um, the cycle and started using that. And I do interval training and it's based on fitness age that Wisloff came up with. Yes. And, um, that's just, and I've done that before and, and I really like it and it seems to be very effective. Yeah. You know, a lot of people like the rower, you know, I think the bike is better if you're a CrossFitter or if you do any sort of like a lot of lifting, a lot of body weight movements, because the rower kind of duplicates a lot of uh, musculature and movements that you're going to hit elsewhere, right? It's kind of similar in some ways to an upper body pull to a, you know, like a lower back stabilization, kind of like a deadlift, a lot of legs, obviously. Whereas the bike is not just more dissimilar to other activities you're probably doing, but it also is at a higher RPM. Like rowing, you're at like 25, 30, at most like 35, 40 contractions per minute. So they're necessarily higher power contractions. Whereas on the bike, you know, you're at 60, 65, 70, whatever um, RPM. So it's, your muscles aren't contracting as uh, quite as hard to do the same amount of work. And so I think it's more compatible, like as an addition, right? You're not going to over fatigue yourself. Whereas like, I think anyone who's like done a lot of Olympic lifting or deadlifting, and then they try to row, like, unless you're really well adapted to that, that can be challenging. Interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Very cool. And I, I've got one more question for you, Russ. Um, so this is, I, I read all your journal, journal articles and CrossFit journal. Um, what's your friend time? What's your best friend time? Gosh. So I think it's either 249 or 251. Nice. Which, you know, if you know CrossFitters always assume the worst. So, like, <laughs> so Factor that. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't listen to me about that 249. <laughs> <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Russ, I, we've had a ton of fun today. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, is there anything you'd like to, anyone to know about? Um, any links we can direct people to that might be helpful? Um, yeah, if I said anything that didn't make sense to you, you, you can harass me on Twitter. <laughs> oh, no. Green plus an E. So G-R-E-E-N plus an E on Twitter. Perfect. I'll Come at me, bro. <laughs> awesome well thanks russ i really appreciate it thanks russ thank you doctor thank you well well that's our show for today i'm will jarvis and i'm will's dad join us next week for more narratives 